Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Left Unread. I am your host, Evan, as always, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Cam. And today we have returning esteemed guest, but this time with a uh, a new title. We're here with uh, uh, Dr. Alex Herbert, who is a uh, an expert on uh, Russian and Soviet history and has written two books, one on... Uh, punk and the late Soviet Union and uh, modern Russia called What About Tomorrow? And he's also written another book on horror movies in the late Soviet Union called uh, Fear Before the Fall. Alex, what's going on, man? Congratulations on the PhD. How are you doing? Thanks. Uh, I'm doing all right. This is where you need like a clap track. <laughs> That's what yeah. I'll be here for. Yeah. We need a clap track in there. Yeah. No, we'll, we'll, we'll throw one in. We'll make it sound like there's, there's at least hundreds of yeah. people. Yeah, people hooting and hollering, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm just, just hanging out. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, so uh, we brought you here. Last time we uh, talked to you was February of 2022 when you were in St. Petersburg, Russia, right after the uh, outbreak of hostilities between Russia and Ukraine. And uh, I thought it would be cool to bring you back on today, uh, you know, a little over a year later to uh, talk about kind of how all of that's been going. And especially over the uh, weird and confusing event that just happened last week with uh, the uh, uh, coup or not coup or attempted coup, depending on who you ask or whatever, involving the uh, the Wagner group. And uh, also, you know, some of your, uh, you know, you just got back from Eastern Europe again. So I uh, also wanted to talk to you a little bit about what you've been going on there or what's been going on there. So, um, I don't know, let's, uh, I guess, start from, you know, February 2022 to now. What's been going on in uh, in Russia and Ukraine? Since uh, <laughs> then, a whole lot has been going on. Um, yeah. There's a lot of new developments. I wish I had gone back to the original episode and listened to yeah. uh, what I had to say there so I can compare it to now. But, I mean, since since the beginning of the war, I, I've maintained the same position, and that that is that, um, that it's a war over natural resources, as most mm-hmm. are in the era of climate change, Um or as all are, I should say, related to, to resources in some way. Um, I think that uh, the the conditions of the war have sort of intensified and in some ways solidified. So, you know, the literally, geographically, the positions of the war have just been going back and forth within like, you know, 50 kilometer, 100 kilometer regions. It hasn't really progressed much. Liberals still seem to think that it's Putin's ambition to take over all of Ukraine. I've never thought that that was yeah. his goal. Yeah. I mean, as much as he says that uh, it's as much as he claims that it's an illegitimate state, I don't think that he realistically even wants to to eliminate what would effectively be a border country between Russia and the, the European Union or NATO. Um, and we've seen. You know, uh, if we're talking in terms of the Russian army, uh, we've seen its strengths and weaknesses. A real weakness in infantry uh, capabilities, but a real strength in air power. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that 
You know, the majority of the weapons that the United States and other Western countries have been supplying to Ukraine, a lot of them are uh, tanks and, and air defense um, yeah. things uh, for that reason. So, you know, and, and the Russian state uh, pretty early on into the war, I think, recognized its infantry weakness and had uh, uh, recruited the, the Wagner group to to. Uh, come in as sort of infantry power to back up uh, uh, also the the Chechen military forces, the Kadyrov bites, if you want to call them that, mm-hmm. um, who are kind of a third uh, acting Russian military force. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think um, I, going back to that episode, I believe you know you talked about how Russia wanted to uh, control a lot of the oil fields in eastern Ukraine. And, you know, that uh, Putin made, like, all these comments about kind of, like, you know, the Russian uh, ethnicity and nationality in eastern Ukraine and uh, sort of, like, uh, protecting them from the Ukrainian state. You know, he kind of talked about that a bit. But, uh, you know, I've always uh, agreed with you that, it you know, and I think we're seeing that, too, where it looks like Russia really just wants to control those regions. Uh, first, that, you know, like the warm water port area on the uh, the Black Sea, but also those those eastern provinces, not because of any you know, sense of like duty to the Russian people there, but rather just because you know you want to control the oil there, or, or you know he wants to control the oil there, and uh, I believe that we did talk about that back in that episode, all the way back back then. So yeah, I also think I mean, you can't you can't ignore the fact that controlling the Black Sea allows them to train their super dolphin uh, squads. <laughs> I don't know if you that rumor yeah. just keeps flying around that there's like super elite Russian dolphin cores being trained in the black sea now which i think is exciting i hope it's true don't deny it yeah don't deny possibility i remember when uh, a couple months into the war the communist party of the russian federation made headlines because the the leader of the party uh made a statement about americans having bio labs in ukraine and you know the whole world laughed at him yeah yeah what a bunch of weirdos, you know, these the, the, the washed up weirdos that the Russian Communist Party is. And then like a few months later, sure enough, like they yeah. bio labs in Ukraine. Yeah. There. Oh no, dude, I think that the Russians probably are training dolphins. It's it's just it's just like, you know, it's just surreal, man. It's crazy. I mean, I hey expect. dude, I, let's I mean, all of those orcas have been attacking boats. Really? You know yeah. what I mean? And there's that <laughs> beluga that they saw off the coast of Norway that had like a Russian like uh satellite ping pack on and just kept but going up and down I, the coast yeah i mean I, there's even you know there's documents of you know american research into cetaceans and stuff like that too oh, so, we, we I mean, still do it yeah 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 it's 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 a real thing it's not like a, yeah. it's, it's not science fiction that's just yeah. i just i just know sounds when, silly but yeah it no. keeps <laughs> it just i just think it's a really funny talking point um because for some reason even though like we do it and it's like a documented thing whenever they talk about russia potentially doing it or or doing it it becomes this like really strange nefarious thing like they're trying like, to build oh, like, like super Archer. dolphin soldiers and it's like I, I no man i think it's just like whatever they're, anyway I digress. Yeah. I, d- you know, I derailed. It could, be, it could be as easy as tracing migration patterns for certain, like tactical reasons or something. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. I, I don't think that like there's a legion of dolphins that are gonna like sink submarines or anything like that. But um, 
you know, they have reasons for, for studying migration patterns in relation to meteorology, weather events, et cetera, et cetera. That, that stuff probably is related to. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, you're going to hear it first, folks. I think I'm going to, I'm going to make the case that I think the Russians sank the Titanic sub with their <laughs> elite dolphin squad. I think they did it. Yeah. As a, as an expert in Russia, I can tell you all it's possible. <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah. So yeah, so that's that's the official stance. There's no shortage of of what the United States can blame Russia for, and to be fair, what Russians can blame the United States for. Yeah, uh, long sword history. Which kind of which brings us uh, back into the the conversation about um, how the war has progressed, and then the Wagner Group as well. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there was uh, no. Other developments, um, I think that the what what happened when the war broke out. I think that most people, like myself, who are who are Russian watchers, we had an understanding and we knew that nationalism in Ukraine was developing into a, a major. You know, some people didn't consider it a problem, but a, a natural kind of. Uh, outcome of the way that these post-Soviet states were built uh, mm-hmm. and the way that they had to separate themselves via memory politics from the Soviet legacy. Uh, the same thing is happening in Georgia to a certain extent, although the nationalism isn't there. There are a lot of neo-Nazis in Georgia, but uh, but it's it's not as bad as as Ukraine got. And, you know, we have we also have the example of Poland. Poland is already a NATO member. Um, it's pretty much integrated into the West, but has one of the most nationalist governments in, in Europe. Yeah. Uh, so, like, you can kind of look at the, particularly the European post-Soviet states, and you can see a pattern of ultra-right politics um, that are overtaking them. And it's, it's not just the result of the contradictions of this sort of hyper- privatization and capitalism that came into it after into them after uh, in the 90s but it's also as i said a result of these like post-soviet memory politics where it's about uh kind of rewriting the history of um uh of these states and so for example i was i was just in georgia uh i'm working on a project on the russian punk scene that has mostly relocated to Tbilisi right now. But in working on that project, I met with a, a good comrade of mine. His name is Brian. He runs the uh, Imagining Soviet Georgia podcast. So if you're, if you're into this stuff, definitely look them up. Um, Reimagining Soviet Georgia. Uh, and we talked for a long time about, well, uh, life in Georgia and how this historical memory is, is being rewritten. And I think Georgia has one of the most interesting case studies because uh, as I was interviewing younger people, younger Georgians in the punk scene, they would always refer to the Soviet period as the Soviet occupation uh, <laughs> because that's what they were taught in school. And and it's a fact that, you know, after 1917, the uh, the uh, Georgia creates what is essentially the, the first Menshevik Republic. Uh, they mm-hmm. don't. They're not immediately a part of the Soviet Union. They create their own so, uh, social democratic party, 
although it's less Menshevik than, you know, Russian Mensheviks are, and it's, it leans more Bolshevik, but it's separate from Russia. And yeah. at the time, uh, Lenin is still alive, and, and Stalin, as you, you both probably know, is ahead of, uh, is in charge of nationalities. And in particular, he's framing his, his understanding of uh, post-imperial nationalities through the lens of Georgia, because he's Georgian, right. through the lens of the Caucasus. And uh, when the Menshevik Republic is established, uh, Lenin and Stalin get into one of their first major feuds. And the, the feud is over what to do with Georgia. Uh, Stalin, uh, Lenin says, let it go. You know, let the Menshevik Republic develop itself and it will gradually come into the fold. You know, it, it has to have its own national path. And Stalin, being the Georgian that he is and, and feeling empowered by his knowledge of, of Georgian nationalism and Georgian history, as well as other Georgian Bolsheviks, they say, no, we need to invade Georgia. We need to take it over. Um, and again, it leads to a giant feud between the two of them. And eventually Stalin wins out by taking a part uh, of the Red Army and just marching it into <laughs> we see in Georgia, taking it over yeah. essentially, uh, uh, getting rid of the, the Mensheviks that are that are there, uh, and replacing them with Bolsheviks and turning Georgia into uh, a, a, a republic, but then also assigning Georgia to be essentially the head of uh, the head republic of the Caucasus region, breaking it up into um, you know uh, Abkhazia and uh, other other national uh, Armenia and other nationally affiliated groups uh, and nations, but Georgia remains the center of the Caucasus. So you can imagine how like this history, which you know, it's not that the it's it's more complicated than saying that the Soviet Union you know occupied Georgia, right? There was a revolution that happened in Georgia. It was a socialist revolution. It yeah. might not have been a Bolshevik revolution, but it was still a socialist revolution. Um, and not only that, it was Georgian Bolsheviks who took over the Menshevik Republic. It wasn't Lenin or other Russians. It was Georgian Bolsheviks who did it. Um, so it's not really it, it could be framed, I guess, as an occupation. But there's another way to see it, which is uh, Georgian socialist infighting, mm -hmm. like Georgian Mensheviks and Georgian Bolsheviks. Um, and that that pattern kind of. It's the same in most places. It's the same in Ukraine. I'm sure that you you both are familiar with like Nestor Makhno in the the resistance movement of mm -hmm. uh, to the Bolshevik forces that happened in the early 1920s. It's the same everywhere, and you can imagine how the, these processes are uh, difficult. It's not as easy as reading Stalin's papers on nationalities and just being like, oh, I agree with Stalin about what he says about nationalities, like. Each region of what becomes the Soviet Union is is uh, particular in that sense, um, and, and responding to different national particularities. So, as when the Soviet Union collapses, uh, or as it's as it's disappearing, I guess through the 80s, all of these national animosities kind of come back to the surface. Uh, and then after it disappears in throughout the 90s, the 90s is sort of a decade of rewriting this history. So, for example, I have a colleague of mine uh, who's working on her PhD, and it's about the uh, Ukrainian diaspora in Canada and the United States. Yeah, yeah. 
through uh, through the uh, I think primarily the seventies, eighties, and the nineties. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can imagine that in the seventies and eighties, Ukrainians who flee Ukraine, you know, are doing so for a reason. They're they're disaffected by the Soviet system. Um, you know, maybe they lost pr- property or uh, you know. What there's multiple reasons. Maybe one of the relatives got purged or something, for whatever reason that they flee. But they flee and they become very. They are very, very anti-Soviet. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, like you can, you know, Solzhenitsyn is a good example. He's not Ukrainian, but you know, you can you know, like use him as an example of somebody who flees the Soviet Union, uh, very unhappy with it based on his own personal experiences, whether it's it's him or his family or whoever, uh, and then starts writing prolifically anti-soviet uh uh novels and and papers and etc etc but these ukrainian uh diasporic peoples do the same thing but the difference is that many of them enter academia in canada and in the united states and they become kind of the the purveyors of uh soviet studies sovietology Mm -hmm. Uh, so the literal study of the soviet union through the 70s and 80s is uh, uh, championed by anti-Soviet Ukrainian and Russian uh, 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 diaspora, and they they write history, they write political science, anthropology, et cetera, et cetera, kind of embedding this anti-Soviet ethos into um, into American academic understandings of Russia. Right. <laughs> what happens is, as when the Soviet Union disappears. Uh, and all of these states become independent, the the new national governments recognize that we have to rewrite the textbooks, literally, of mm-hmm. of our histories. And so what do they do? They all of these all of these uh, Canadian and American Ukrainians who couldn't go to their country for a long time, they come back to Ukraine and they write the textbooks. Uh, they they write all the the new histories, new understandings of Ukraine that are sponsored by the state and then they go out to the schools and they replace the Soviet textbooks with the, the new, for example, Ukrainian textbooks. And she has stories of people who, of teachers who are given these new textbooks and they say like, we don't want to teach this. This isn't, this isn't what we know. This right. isn't what we went to school to learn. This is something totally different, but they're forced to teach it. Uh, yeah. You, you have a literal reimagining of, of, Soviet history based on explicitly anti-Soviet uh, 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 scholars, I guess. Yeah, and you can really see how those viewpoints in you know Canada and in the United States in the 70s and 80s, if you have these uh, you know people who grow up in the Soviet Union and go there, why that they also might be uh, promoted within circles in the West if they're specifically also writing anti-Soviet and anti-communist viewpoints. You know what I mean? Like, there's sort of, like, that kind of thing it would also play quite well over here, so it could even get, you know, uh, help them in their own popularity here in the West. Yeah. I think that tends to be a really common trend anytime you have a large, displaced, diasporic group. I mean, you can look at, like, Cuban-Americans is another good example, right? Yeah. There tends to be this really you know, aggressively like anti-Castro bent that you get when you speak to a lot of folks, you know, in Florida, for example. Um, 
you know, who are who are members of the Cuban diaspora, maybe two generations, three generations removed. And I just think it's always an interesting thing to think about um, whether you're reading scholarship or you're just talking to, you know, another lay person about these events. You know, you have to think like, you know, I think we all tend to, as people with varying levels of, you know, study in, in history, we think about historiography, right? But I think a lot mm-hmm. of people tend to take this stuff at face value. And you have to remember, it's like, well, think about it. You know, why why did those people leave, you know, the Soviet Union? Why did those people leave Cuba? And, and how would that impact their view and the generational view within their family unit or whatever of the, the country that they left? And of course, it's going to be you know, colored a certain way. It's just, it's just a really interesting element to, you know, even following the media coverage of, you know, the current situation in the Ukraine, it's, it's, it's really apparent, um, you know, just, just the, the drawing of lines is really apparent and it's, it becomes really clear immediately, um, what sort of angle folks are approaching these issues from. Um, and there's such yeah. like a generational impact that can be passed along. And you'd think that that would go away, right? You'd think that there would be sort of like a watering down of that sort of level of like vitriol. But really, like if you think about it, I mean, if you heard your grandfather or grandmother say something, you know, particularly harsh about, you know, where they grew up, where they came from, um, you're really going to internalize that. And I think it's like a very natural progression. Um, and I think it's really important for people to kind of keep that in mind whenever they're reading these sort of accounts, especially it's like, you got to know not only like what someone's credentials are, but like, where are they from? Where did they grow up? Why did they leave where they, you know, are writing about, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. It's a survey bias. Yeah. And, totally. um, and I have, uh, you know, at least in my case, you know, my, my before, um, for, you know, the listeners who don't know any Portuguese, that's my grandmother in Portuguese. I, I, I don't know if she left Portugal as a child or if that's her parents left and she was born here, I know that she's still a citizen of Portugal. But they left during the uh, Estado Novo, which was this, like, fascist period of Portuguese history. And uh, obviously, I mean, Portugal has not been fascist for something like 50 years, 60 years, something like that. Um, and, uh, <clears throat> you know, the Carnation Revolution, uh, yeah, it was, like, about 1970. But even still, my before doesn't really want anything to do with uh, the country of Portugal, even though, you know, Salazar has not been, you know, he's been dead for like 50 fucking years. You know what I mean? That, that, that all, that all went away a long time ago, but even then she still, she still has, you know, negative viewpoints about, uh, the, the actual country of Portugal. But, you know, the rest of my family doesn't obviously like my mom and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, her siblings have been to Portugal and they've been to the Azores. So they have, you know, they have very good, uh, good things to say about it. But yeah, my before still, she's, wants nothing to do with the country, which is, hey, and that's, uh, that's even after, you know, regime change.
Alex, would you would you want to dive a little deeper into um, if you if you'd like? Uh, so I know what a lot of people are probably immediately aware of when it comes to the Ukraine situation is obviously this. Uh, I don't know what to call it. There, people were calling it a coup. People were calling it a <laughs> I don't know, but the the whole scenario with the Wagner Group, which seemed to only last a couple days, but sort of captured the news cycle as things are wont to do. Um, and you mentioned the Wagner Group um, earlier on in this episode when we, you were talking about you know Russia's need to supplement their their um, infantry, and so they bring in these sort of paramilitary groups, or some folks are calling them a mercenary group. Um, what are your thoughts on on this current situation? And you know, as that was unfolding, you know, at any point did you consider that like a serious uh, threat to you know Putin's central power structure? Um, what are your thoughts on you know the sort of display of magnanimity that Putin is is uh, you know showing by allowing um, Prigozhin to go into to, to exile? I don't know. Do you have do you have any thoughts on this uh, current sitch? Yeah, I I mean it it was crazy to 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 behold. I think um in general as soon as the Wagner group uh joined the war, I think a lot of people like me knew that something would happen. I mean, yeah. it's it's sort of it it's sort of to be expected that uh a mercenary group that is used to operating Outside of Europe, primarily in Africa, yeah. that when when they come to Europe and subject themselves more to the state, uh, particularly the Ministry of Defense, it's sort of expected that like something was going to happen, that there was mm-hmm. going tension between the Russian Ministry of Defense and this uh, state-funded paramilitary group um, that uh, that is used to operating virtually autonomously um so yeah i mean they they're brought in to supplement infantry primarily um the the head uh as uh, i think you all you all probably know yevgeny prigozhin uh is you know famously the the former caterer to to putin you know <laughs> like really close friends with the guy uh mm-hmm. you know clear it, it is correct, I think, to consider Russia as kind of a gangster state, a mobster state. So all these guys, you know, have dealings with themselves um, and have known each other for quite some time. Yeah. Uh, uh, bring them in and subject them to the Ministry of, the, of Defense to the extent that um, the Russian state and the ministry is to supply the Wagner Group with uh, ammunition, arms, certain missiles, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and my understanding of what happened is Prigozhin had been critiquing the Ministry of Defense for quite some time for uh, mishandling the war. Uh, you know, the the relative like success of Russia in the war right now is kind of ambiguous. Um, you know, there are a lot of people that say Russia is doing great in the war, but then there's a lot of news reports that, you know, especially with the, the beginning of the Ukrainian offensive, that it wasn't doing so well anymore. But either way, uh, Prigozhin's sort of scapegoat was the Ministry of Defense. And I will say that he 
he may not be completely wrong in that the Ministry of Defense was kind of mishandling it, and the Minister uh, Ministry of Interior, essentially the secret police of the FBI of of Russia, um, and uh, so that that leads, I guess, to the to what happened last week. It. It was a coup to the extent that it it was a uh, state-funded paramilitary group trying to uh, replace certain members of the Russian government. I don't believe that it was ever Prigozhin's intention to replace Putin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't think that was ever the option, but he, he definitely wanted to get rid of uh, the, the two ministers that he was scapegoating for causing problems. Um, and I do believe that Prigozhin also assumed that the Russians would, uh, would join their ranks, would easily like join as they were going. Yeah. And there were some reports of, of Russian soldiers that were turning sides as, as they were uh, going towards Moscow. But I don't think that he got the support that he anticipated. So, by the time they got outside of Moscow, I do think that Prigozhin recognized uh, if they do try to storm Moscow, they'd probably get annihilated. Um, mm-hmm. Because you know, Russian, the Russian military again, they're 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 real powers in the air. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And the Wagner Group doesn't can't really match that air power, and so uh, and you know that's another holdup for Putin, right? Is you don't want to unleash Russian air power outside of the capital. Yeah. <laughs> supporters amongst the Russian people. Right. The better option is to to negotiate some way. And so Prigozhin knew that he needed to negotiate. Putin, of course, wanted it the whole time. But then the question becomes, why Lukashenko and why not Putin? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that that's just a matter of state security. Uh, Lukashenko... Uh, probably more expendable in some way uh, mm-hmm. Putin is, and, and they're aware of that. Again, Lukashenko, Putin, Prigozhin, they're all close friends, right? They've been yeah. associated with each other for a long time. Uh, and um, I think it's a matter of state security. I, I do think that Putin was probably in St. Petersburg at the time, left Moscow. Um, although, you know, the reports of that are, like, unofficial, but it would just make sense. Um, yeah, he would probably not want people to think, you know, with his with his image that he did what any ruler would do, which is, you know, get the fuck out of Dodge because you want to preserve <laughs> the integrity of the state, right? But, yeah. yeah, I'm sure that there's there's some intent to create the image that, like, yeah, I wasn't worried about it. I just stayed. I just stayed at my house and uh, did my normal thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh So, yeah, I think Prigozhin was sort of uh, faced with this this option of attacking Moscow that, like, definitely would have led to uh, uh, the annihilation of his own men, mm-hmm. as well as, like, members of the Russian military. Uh, or or the other option was to surrender on on terms with with Putin. Um, 
so in this case, like Putin really had no no uh, interest in having a bloody outcome of it, right? He didn't he didn't need to use the air force, didn't need to use uh, force to 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 end the conflict, uh, and it would have just killed a large amount of Russians and probably undermined the Ukraine war as well as undermine Putin's own image among Russians themselves. It would have been a, an irreparable um, di- PR disaster for Putin yeah. had he responded to it violently. Um, but he did have everything to gain from from remaining steadfast, which is what happened. Even if he was in St. Petersburg, he still seemed at least somewhat level-headed, although I do think that the, the speech he gave... Uh, the day before, he did seem a little shaken, but, you know, that's speculation. Who knows? And, you know, liberals do that all the time. Right. There's only so much <laughs> yeah. you can read yeah. into, you know, an observation of the way someone's acting under, like, those hot lights and what You know what oh, I mean? Yeah. Like, it, it, Dude, is, I, it is. I remember, I think this was, like, after, like, a couple months after the war, there was a video of Putin talking to, like, one of his generals or something like that, and he's holding the table as he's speaking, and the fucking shit that was coming out just about him holding the table. Yeah. I saw people say that he was obviously, like, dying or that yeah, he had yeah. been having strokes and all this shit. And yeah. it was just like, cause, just because of the way that he was sitting there and had his hand underneath the table. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so that's another interesting thing to come out of this uh, scenario, right? So, obviously, so Prigozhin has been, you know, sent into exile in Belarus, Um and I think what what's the deal? So any any members of, of Wagner that were actively marching on the capital have been whatever disbanded and disarmed, and then the rest are just their leadership is being transferred, right? They're under contract still, so something like that. But you know, it's just interesting to me to look at <clears throat> this result, right? Which seems like fairly deft diplomacy on on, on Putin's part, um, and it's just funny to to sort of speculate, right? So. You have this response from him, and so many folks, especially you know, at least in our media, are like, "Oh, look, like he's he's weak. He's losing. He's losing his edge. He doesn't have the same kind of control he did. Otherwise, he never would have, uh, you know, made this bargain. Never would have let you know Prigozhin live. Never would have let him out of his sight. Yada yada." Um, sure, yeah, maybe, but like, I just think it's also funny to think like if he'd done the opposite, if he'd like snatched him and you know <laughs> cut his head off in the square you'd also be looking you know we'd be hearing the same reports from the media like oh see he's losing his edge he's he's crazy he's a madman it's just such a it's an interesting opportunity to see like that even in a situation which i think by 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 any standard looks like it was handled kind of diplomatically perfectly um mm-hmm. considering how precarious the situation could have been um you know media will always find a way to like to make their narrative and their agenda known. Um, and not that I'm like some big Putin stan or anything, but like, yeah, I mean, this is, this was a pretty rocky situation for a couple of days and things ended up kind of falling right into his pocket. And, you know, I, I just think it's funny. I just think it's funny to see like how the news media will jump on anything and be like, yeah, yeah he's, he's, he's a crackpot. He's either, yeah. so he's either this psycho despot or he's like this like weak, impotent idiot. How can one person be both, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it was funny, too, because, like, when the, when it first started happening, I remember I started seeing, I was at work Friday afternoon, and I'm starting to see people talk about it on Twitter around, like, 2 or 3 p.m., something like that, and immediately I'm just like, I'm not falling for that, and then it's just, like, pretty quickly, 
uh, you start to see like more and more reports come out, and it was just kind of like, uh, okay, maybe there's like actually something happening here too. And I thought it was also weird because like when it started happening, like you start seeing reports around like 2 p.m., 3 p.m. here in the West. That's like what in like St. Petersburg, Moscow. That's like what like two in the morning or something like that. One yeah. in the morning. Yeah, eight hours. So, yeah, so I was just kind of like, all right, like, it's weird that this would be happening in the middle of the night there. And, uh, uh, but like right during like prime time, you know, news here, yeah. uh, in the West. But yeah, no, pretty quickly, uh, you know, you, you start seeing more of it. And then, um, Cam, our friend who is, uh, who's Russian, uh, I was like asking him about it too. I was like, dude, what the fuck is going on in Russia right now? And he's like, he was like talking to his family in Russia and he's like, dude, nobody has any idea. Yeah. You, you also have to keep in mind when thinking about the, the peace terms for the whole thing that, since Wagner Group joined the war in Ukraine, the Russian government has awarded Wagner soldiers in leadership, like military awards, yeah. you know, ha- hailing them as heroes uh, in the war for their effort. And so to punish them in in any like uh, uh, extrajudicial way would have also reflected bad on, on Putin and sure. the state. So, Right. They've been legitimizing this group this entire time, you know, and then to 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 about face and say, oh, well, you know, this is a criminal organization. It's 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 a tacit admission that you've been employing a criminal organization to handle state affairs abroad. And it's like that's that's a really rocky ground to find yourself on, you know. So there's like there's there's really two ways to consider it. The the first one is that. uh, on the one hand, Putin did, despite what liberals say, Putin did come out of it looking and appearing and being steadfast, mm-hmm. uh, and and managed to, you know, you know, zoom out for a minute and and just consider, managed to avoid any coup situation. Mm-hmm. No matter who did the the peace talking, doesn't mm-hmm. matter. Like the Putin regime stands. Uh, and if you study the history of past of coups past in history, you know that like usually a they're not they're not conducted to uh, to force a leader out as much as they're conducted to uh, force government change mm-hmm. in some. Uh, and then the other thing is that uh, the other thing to consider the other the second one is that. Um, while Putin did does come out of this looking steadfast, uh, there is an obvious like PR campaign to try to kind of reboost his image, um, and so there are plenty of Russians that I think, in particular, people in the Wagner Group who um, uh, are very unsatisfied with the outcome, whether whether that's because. You know, they're shocked that a group was able to get so close to Moscow or in the case of Wagner soldiers upset because they didn't go the full way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A lot of them have actually fled. But now now Wagner group is being completely dismantled, which I think was what the Ministry of Defense wanted all along um, for them to sign to be proper Russian uh, military personnel. And as you said, Prigozhin is in Belarus. Whether he stays there, I'm not sure. I think a lot of the Wagner people want to go back to Africa, where they can operate autonomously and uh, virtually autonomously. Just live do. that 
fucking opulent warlord lifestyle. Exactly. <laughs> and like yeah. honestly, like that like that shit sounds sick. Who doesn't want to just like be like a brutal warlord, you know? Yeah, and I mean, I'm sure there's through all... the, the land taking yeah. what you need. That just sounds I'm great sure. to me. And you yeah, know, but... as a food service industry guy, honestly, I got to look at Prigozhin as sort of like an idol figure. Like it makes me realize like I could have so much more if I could just get like 40 or 50,000 of my closest friends together um and you know, get everybody ready to to commit some atrocities. You have the to have one rich, one rich friend can do a whole lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately for unfortunately for us, none of us have rich friends. So. Yeah. yeah. We we need our Friedrich Engels. Yeah, you know, we got we got to find that rich guy. And then, <laughs> but uh, no, I think I think there's also a calculus too for the the Wagner Group where they're saying like, yeah, would you rather like just be in Africa and do whatever you want, uh, and live that warlord lifestyle? Or, like, go up against, like, a NATO-supplied army. Yeah, like an organized, <laughs> like... I'm sure there's also that calculus. Like, yeah, there's a much higher chance of just getting, you know, mulched Well, here I think that's, like, Europe. the sort of mental calculus that happens in any modern conflict, you know? It's, like, yeah. if you look back, like, all, all these, you know, all the engagements that, that, you know, the U.S. as an example, that we've, you know... You know, triumphed in in the last hundred years. There's been a degree of asymmetry there, right? And and any time you're forced to confront like a, a a force that's on relatively equal footing, it's just it's immediately clear that it's just like not going to be some cakewalk, right? Like, you know, or or the British Empire is maybe a better example. Like, it's one thing to win like the Zulu Wars, but then like another to go up against you know uh napoleon or something right like it's 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 always just this like interesting uh dynamic to see like when you have these people that have been steamrolling like you know relatively under-equipped enemies the next thing you know they're they're expected to to fight on equal footing and it's 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 it just never works out that was kind of a rambling point but (laughs) (laughs) no no i think it's totally true and you know like i said wagner group isn't the only that exists and also like it's it's important for i think american leftists who who tend to be apologetic in some ways or or fail to to really register dialectics and useful historic uh, global geopolitical ways uh to keep in mind that like wagner group is also uh has a lot of neo-nazis in it as well oh yeah um, they they have I mean, total like neo Nazi and like um, like neo Slavic pagan roots that I forget his name but Wagner who it was his call sign the guy who founded the group was yeah. like a, a total Nazi apologist and like big into like revisionist you know Slavic religion and all that stuff like and that's a real common thread among like European neo Nazis you know it, whether they be norse pagans or whatever and i don't personally have any you know i think it's a real shame that those cool old religions are getting like dragged through the mud by these assholes because you know just as a guy who likes that shit i just think it's it sucks you know i'll Mm -hmm. never get my viking rune tattoos now because the fucking nazis ruined them but uh you know it's 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 just interesting yeah they're 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 totally fucking sketchy group yeah, Dmitry Utkin is the name of the guy. He's got Nazi tattoos on him as yeah. well. And, and yeah, he has the, the, the SS, and he's got a few other. <clears throat> so I mean, it's pretty impossible to be apologetic for them. I mean, and uh, that's one thing to consider. But again, there are other groups 
in Russia that operate in Russia uh, besides Wagner. And the one that I mentioned is the Kadyrovites, if you want to call them that, the mm -hmm. Chechen military, which again yeah. operates kind of autonomously, uh, but is subject to the Russian Ministry of Defense, who, again, I think that was another force that Prigozhin kind of measured when when they were on their way to Moscow, because he understood that as soon as the Kadyrovites meet up with them, then that, that would have been, you know, a terrible civil war that broke out between two paramilitary groups, essentially. Right, mm -hmm. uh, right because they're, they, they've got to be ideologically opposed, if not at least, like, asymmetrical to one another. I mean, I can't imagine uh, a bunch of, like... Well, yeah, Nazis tend to not like Muslims. Yeah, there, <laughs> there's, there's a pretty obvious uh, <laughs> point of contention I there. <laughs> The, the entire Nazi thing in Eastern Europe, too, I mean, that's something that's, like, so fascinating because, you know, Nazism was obviously specifically, like, quite explicitly anti-Slavic, uh, anti-Eastern European, and, you know, it was, you know, really pointed at, you know, the Soviet Union, and as, you know, I'm sure all of us here know, and many of our listeners, you know, close to 30 million uh, Soviet Soviets died defending the Soviet Union in World War II. And, uh, you know, you see this uh, also in other ways, too. Like, there's, like, you know, famously, like, Nazism in, like, uh, uh, like South America and Latin America. You know, the famous uh, Carlos Lader, who is one of the CIA's cocaine smugglers for Pablo Escobar, um, who is an avowed Nazi. And I just always found it funny how Nazism has really been co-opted by many groups that uh, were the victims of Nazism and also find ways to, like, take that ideology and, like, point it at each other. You know, I don't know if you guys really know what I'm talking about there, but no, no, I I totally get yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, no, it. Uh, it's like, why would a, you want to be in that club? They wouldn't have liked you. <laughs> they would have, yeah, they would have exterminated <laughs> you. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean the the biggest the biggest contradiction there is Georgia. Georgia has a. <laughs> I even ran into neo Nazis in Georgia when I was there. Um, Georgia has a big Nazi problem, and it's kind of ambiguous if Georgians are even white. Yeah, yeah, if they're even, right. like, white or European, yeah. Uh, so, it is bizarre, and I, I it does come, again, from this ultra-nationalism that, that you can trace back to uh, the way, the, uh, the way in which the Soviet Union, as we were, as I was talking about earlier, the way in which the Soviet Union configured nationalities policy uh, that was very particular to the Soviet political structure, right? You had you had republics, you had autonomous regions, uh, et cetera, et cetera, that that all came together to form uh, a union of socialist republics and regions. Um, and those that weren't republics were under the jurisdiction of uh, of, of uh, area republics. So, like I said, Georgia was the head of the Caucasus region, essentially. Um, 
And what that allowed for was you could be under the Georgian Republic, but as uh, Azerbaijan, for example, you could operate autonomously as your own uh, autonomous region. Um, you send delegates to, to the Soviet in Tbilisi or whatever, uh, who, who then send representatives to, to Moscow. And when that system collapses, uh, it's sort of like trying to fit a circle into a square uh, box, right? Because you have this new privatization process, the introduction of, of liberal liberalism in the market, which kind of necessitates uh, an, a new emphasis on nationalities and, and national uh, uh, ownership, um, and, and as well as, as, as redrawing borders. And so, you know, you look at places like the Caucasus where, where all these national feuds came out, because then it was like, well, now where do the borders lie in these regions? You know, we didn't have to consider this before because we were all like, maybe we were separate nationally, but we were together in, in this, in this regional, uh, republic. So, uh, it makes sense that, nationalism would then emerge in that period and be and be extremely weaponized in order for these places to defend themselves you know so Assyria, south Ossetia and abkhazia are, are another example mm -hmm. there are always south Ossetians and abkhazians but they didn't they they were content in the soviet period and i'll use the word content i wouldn't say that they were like fully happy but they were content with the with the way that the national structure was set up um, so that when it collapsed and it became more about national economies rather than a broader Soviet economy, uh, then resources, then access to goods, uh, access to the market, uh, and politics, et cetera, et cetera, all come into question. And the best way to defend that all is through nationalism and nationalism in the hands of uh, naive uh naive people becomes, you know, ultra nationalism. Right. So it's 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 really telling that most of the people who I who I saw in Georgia who are who were explicitly neo Nazis and even in Russia, they're people who like are maybe our age, if not younger. You know, the people mm -hmm. I saw in Georgia were like seventeen, eighteen, very, oh, that's very so young. Fucking that's so sad. fucking sad. They look like kids. <laughs> So they didn't even live through the nineties. You know, like yeah. they didn't they didn't see what happened during collapse. Uh, their grandparents who served in the, who may have served in the second world war were probably dead or, yeah. or dying when they were like super young. So they never really met them. Uh, and so as much as we like to point out that Soviet history has been rewritten, uh, and that there's a lot of, uh, misconceptions about the Soviet union, they, these people say the same thing about, national socialism right? right that that you know uh the holocaust was a conspiracy and that um you know it was it was the liberal west with the communist east that tried to snuff out a competing economic system uh and ideology because they didn't think there was room for it and yada yada and and to certain again naive 17 18 year olds this is like a really compelling it can be a compelling argument yeah <clears throat> yeah, man, that's sad. Um, 
Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I've, uh, I, I always, yeah, I, I'm always uh, amazed just by seeing uh, the way that the Nazism has really been co-opted by people from the regions that were like most devastated by it. Um, it's fucking weird too. When I was in Georgia, the first time that I saw like true blue neo-Nazi, I was doing an interview in this place called the that they call the Hippodrome. It used to be the big outdoor park that the Soviet Union built. There was like a swimming pool and. And a nature walk and everything like that. Was really nice. A, was but, there a chariot track? <laughs> there was a big field. They probably did do uh, something like horseshoe. Yeah. But, yeah. But it's kind of like abandoned now. It's grown over. There's like a, like the buildings are the buildings that are there are like falling apart. But I was doing the interview there because uh, I was interviewing a Georgian friend, and he was like, "I want to do the interview somewhere where punks used to hang out, like before yeah. the Ukraine war, before Russians came." I want to go to like an old spot. And so we did it there. And while we're interviewing him, these like two kids, white, white, pale white kids, like run by with bald heads, flight jack, uh, fighter jackets with like the, uh, what is the, the symbol with the, uh, I always forget the names of the, the white power symbols, but they're, they're obvious. You know what they are. Yeah. Uh, they stop. And in Georgian, they, they, they look at my friend and they, there's going back and forth in Georgia. When they left, I was like, what the, the hell did they say to you? And he's like, they, they said that they're going to beat up a pedophile. And they asked us if we wanted to come. The fuck? I, just, I just said no to them. And then they left. And I was like, like, this is what those kids are doing. Like, you know, they're oh. and, and, like, who's the pedophile that they're going after? Like, yeah. how do they know the pedophile? It's just right. well, it's weird made us. Yeah, pedophile, yeah. Yeah, no one would ever be a pedophile. No, but I get, I get what you're saying. Yeah, they're they're, yeah. they're almost certain. It's almost certainly just like arbitrary violence. Uh, yeah, no, yeah. I mean, the same thing happens here, right? That yeah. like, you ever see people with like their trucks or something that has like some anti-pedophile phrase on? It? It's like when I see a pedophile, I fuck him up public, yeah. or not. and it's like, all right, dude, like, I get yeah. it. You're bad. You want to fight some someone? To, you want? But also, to- it's like it's like walking around and just being like, hey, just so everybody knows. I'm not gay. Yeah. <laughs> like if anybody was yeah. wondering, also nice to meet you all. But just in case anyone was curious, I don't do any of that. So yeah. don't even ask. Like I yeah, always just, just assume the louder you are ass. about like, I, I don't know anybody that I've ever heard. That's like, just goes on and on and on about being like worried about groomers and getting rid of pedophiles and all this stuff. It's like, oh. yeah, man, for sure. I mean like, yeah, I agree, I guess. But like, being awful loud yeah, over very there. Nice, very nice. Now let's see the hard drive. Yeah, really, <laughs> really interested in that search history, my man. <laughs> well, that's that's the thing too that uh, my friend told me. His name is Gio. He's great. He he sings in a grindcore band. Um, but I was talking to him because these kids are so young. They might have even been younger than eighteen. They look very young. Yeah. And I was yeah. like, is there? There's got to be like older people that are filling their heads with this shit and he was like yeah absolutely like there are older older like uh seasoned neo-nazis who have been in it for a long time who are like filling these kids heads with like all this bullshit yeah and sending them out there yeah they've got some patrick stewart from green room just with a uh a shakespearean a stentonian voice just filling their heads mm-hmm. with neo-nazi propaganda <laughs> i was thinking of american history x yeah, that too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> guy that's like kind of the the fucking. Yeah, he's. Uh, I was. Yeah, um, he runs the Nazi punk club. That was Stacy yeah. Keach. Is the actor? Yeah, yeah. he's. Uh, he's got a cleft lip. But yeah, yeah. Uh, great, hell of a movie. 
Um, both good movies. Actually, Green Room is a fucking great movie. Hey, Green Room's brutal. I rewatched that a few months ago. It's fucking yeah, a little brutal. Um, but yeah, so uh, we're we're coming up. We're at about the hour mark. I wanted, uh, and I think Evan wants too. Alex, what what else have you been up to, man? I know we've talked about. Um, we definitely want to have you back on sooner than a year. Jeez, it's been a year and a half, which feels nuts. Yeah. I, I didn't, I wouldn't have realized it was that long ago since last time we saw you, but, um, I know you've, you've been up to a ton. What are you, what are you working on? Is there anything that you want to like chat about that you like any of your projects or anything? Um, I mean, I, since finishing my degree, uh, I really haven't been doing as much as I should. Uh, I should be working on turning my dissertation into a book, which mm-hmm. is like a whole, it's kind of like rewriting the entire thing. Yeah. Uh, and it's a process and I know it is, and it's a very taxing one, which is why I keep putting it off. Yeah, I mean, you, you just worked really hard for a number of years, yeah. so it, yeah. you, you can, you can take it easy for a few months. <laughs> yeah. We give you permission. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, but I, I, um, like I said, I, uh, from the Russian punk book that I wrote, I am very well connected with like the punk community in St. Petersburg and in Moscow. And when the war broke out, a lot of people that I knew uh, fled. The people that had visas already um, for the European Union, they were allowed to go to Georgia as well. And so they, uh, most of them went to Georgia or the Caucasus. Uh, and that makes sense because every, every Almost everybody in Georgia, for example, speaks Russian. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't. They might not want to, but they do. Especially the older people. It, and it was very much like Russia when I was there, um, but just more tropical and beautiful. Uh, but anyway, uh, so I thought that this kind of exodus of the punk community from the cities. You know, these are people that ran DIY venues. They had restaurants. Uh, et cetera, et cetera, really like purveyors of the punk scene. I thought it was fascinating that they were all going to Georgia. And not only that, but in Georgia, in Tbilisi and in Batumi, the other city, creating DIY venues mm-hmm. uh, and, and restaurants and, and opening restaurants and et cetera, et cetera. And so I thought that that phenomenon in itself is kind of was worth documenting Um for punk history in general. I mean, I can't think of another time in history where uh, at least half of an entire scene has relocated to another country that doesn't speak the same language as them. Yeah. Uh, so I, you know, and I had friends reaching out to me and they were like, you got to come and like, you know, add another chapter to your book or whatever, which like is impossible at this point. But they were like, you got to come and document it. And so uh, I originally had the idea of going uh, doing what I did with the with What About Tomorrow, which was taking interviews and then writing a book about it. Yeah. But I was like, you know what, let's get a little funky and try something different. And so, you know, I've never made a film before. uh, And so I was like, let's try to make like a mini documentary about it. And I think that that as a medium would be maybe more interesting and more fitting for the topic itself. Mm -hmm. Um, so well, yeah, cause I'm sure there's, there's such a visual element to all of this that like, you just, 
you can do your best, but you just can't really capture in a book or, or, Mm -hmm. you know, in a podcast, for example, like, you know, we can't describe how handsome you are to everybody listening, but we get (laughs) to see it, you know? And so if this was a, if this was a a film, we'd really be able to share your, just your natural beauty. And I'm sure that that's, yeah, that sounds really cool, man. Yeah. True. It's true. I mean, because, you know, most Americans, when you say Georgia, they, they think the Georgian state, Mm -hmm. state of Georgia. And then, and then when you tell them now it's a country in the Caucasus, they're like, what the fuck is the Caucasus? Like they don't, or if they know. Oh, you're about to, if you say the Caucasus to most Americans, you're going to get a fucking joke is what you're going to get. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, A joke or a slack jaw just stare. Why don't you you suck my Caucasus? Yeah. I, I think probably most Americans too would have the same concept of Georgia if you know if you say you know like it's near Kazakhstan they would think of like fucking Borat as like what Kazakhstan yeah. would be and then what Georgia would be you know I I was talking to a group of friends of mine and I kept referring to people from the Caucasus as Caucasian because they mm-hmm. are Caucasian and uh they don't really know anything about the Soviet Union or Russia or anything. So, like, at the end of the night, they were like, you, know, you kept talking about white people like that. I mean, it's kind of weird. No, people from, like, from, from the, where the term comes from, the fucking mountains, yeah. man. <laughs> they're from yeah. Caucasus, like, yeah. the Caucasian. Yeah. Which, yeah. and that's, I think it's funny, right? Because that's become, like, the catch-all, like, whatever term for, for white folks, but... Isn't that based on like some pretty old weird race science? And it's it's odd that we still say that, right? Like that. But there were that, there were probably calipers involved. That's what so. I'm saying. There was definitely the measurement of head bumps involved yeah. whenever they named, you know, people it's Caucasian. Like the, it's, it's the Indo or the yeah the Indo-European migrations of like the yeah ancient ancient is period. That, is that supposed to be like our 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 traditional homeland, like the Proto-Indo-Europeans? I guess so, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, I, linguistically, I have no idea. Yeah. Is uh, is the Georgian language now an Indo-European language? Isn't it like a language isolate? Yeah, it's got, it is completely 100% its own ancient language. Yeah. Georgians are very proud of that, too. Its own yeah. alphabet, its own sounds, etc. Yeah. And, you know, everyone's like, yeah, but you know Russian, so you could make out like a little bit, right? No. Yeah, it's not- totally... It's what isn't ba- is it Basque? Is Basque ba- a language? Basque also? is the same, yeah, and uh, Finnish, I believe, is also uh, no, told. The Finno-Ugric, there is a family there, um, and actually yeah, hun- yeah. Hungarian is is in the same. Yeah, really? Yeah, huh. yeah. Hey, the, the the Hungarians are originally from the Ural Mountains, and they migrated yeah. south in like the like the seven hundreds or something, seven or eight yeah. hundreds, which is why yeah. that's a Crusader Kings event. Oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, yeah, Bosque is definitely its own thing. Yeah, yeah, man, wow. So uh, Georgia is uh, a place that I've always been, like, peripherally interested in, but it's never made my, uh, you know, top ten list of places to travel. But now that you're talking about this, like, migration of the punk scene there and everything, it sounds like it's probably a pretty happening place to be. It sounds like there's probably a lot of cool shit going on in Georgia. Well, there was also some uncool shit going on in Georgia pretty recently too. Yeah. Uh, like, I, I I also didn't really know what to make of those protests too, but about like some like new law that was like being considered or introduced that was like very pro NATO, and then there was like kind of competing uh uh, uh, uh pro and anti NATO or pro EU and anti EU kind of a uh, counter protest going on, but 
Georgia has a very interesting government right now. Uh, it has a president and a prime minister. The president is pretty powerless. Mm -hmm. uh, the president is uh, the. I believe the president. Hold on, is very pro NATO. Um, Yeah, I, I believe that the president is very pro NATO, and the prime minister is is not so much. Mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not that they're like anti NATO; it's that they, the the uh, you know, a friend of mine described it as uh, exercising uh, uh, strategic patience with Russia is what they call it. Yeah. So so not like blindly appeasing Russia, but also not just uh, being completely anti Russian. Yeah, I mean. I, I can't imagine anybody's looking at what's happened in Ukraine and and thinking that it, it's uh, that they want to be on the NATO side there against Russia. You know what I mean? And like, because I mean, like Ukraine right now seems like it's really just the government is propped up entirely by the United States, and that if the United States money stopped flowing in, there would be some sort of like I think just systemic collapse. But. I mean, I, I can't imagine there are too many people who want to be going through what Ukraine's going through right now. Yeah, uh, it, it it's interesting. I mean, the 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 next part of what we were talking about towards the beginning of the show mm -hmm. is uh, when when I was referring to like the the rewriting of history and memory politics and stuff is the way that um, a lot of the narrative a lot of the anti-soviet narrative has been conflated with anti-russian narrative yeah. mm -hmm. uh, and again by no means was that all of ukraine uh uh but but i do think that now because of the ukraine war it's super intensified so even in tbilisi there's graffiti all over the city that says like fuck russians or russians go home blah blah mm -hmm. blah uh but there, there's also like economic reasons for that because you know to, in order to be a russian in order to be russian and to immigrate to to tbilisi you have to have some money yeah mm -hmm. you, you have a visa and you have to have some kind of money or maybe a job that you can work remotely with the company that's still in russia or whatever so that means that, like, it's easier for Russians with more money to go to a country like Georgia, which is, you know, not the most economically well off and open businesses uh, and uh, rent apartments, you know, hike the cost of rent. And so what's happening now is the, the cost of rent in Georgia uh, doubled in the past, uh, I think it's like six months or something like that. It's the Jesus. biggest hike. The biggest hike that anyone has seen in a really long time, um, and but there are there are people who won't rent to Russians. There are people who like just want to rent to Russians because they know that they can get the money for it, right. uh, and that's what's causing a lot of the the working class uh, hostility toward Russians in Tbilisi. Mm -hmm. But yeah. I, I realized doing the interviews that like the punk scene is sort of different. Because if you ask punk people about these issues, the economic issues, they're all like, 
Yeah, but, you know, it's the punk scene, and it doesn't matter where you're from internationally. We all do these things together, and unity, 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 blah, blah, blah. And so they're, they're kind of like, they see it, but they're like, yeah, but the Russians came, and they, they opened up all these really cool venues, so now there's more places for us to play. So they don't really get the effect that it's having on the working class of Georgia. Right. They just see it as, like, you know, they're punks from Russia. There's, they don't have control over their situation in their country. They're, they're opening clubs, and that's cool. And so there's more shows every night, and that's awesome. And it's like, all right, I get, I get why you're okay with that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But also, like, a lot of the graffiti uh, in Tbilisi is, like, really professionally done. Mm. A lot of that, like, there'd be graffiti of the NATO flag, or the American flag, even, or fucking the the European Union flag, and they're like stenciled on very nicely, which makes you think that like these aren't like street artists, right? These are paid mm-hmm. people that are that are spray painting that stuff. Yeah, yeah. If you guys need a a show image, I can send you a photo of some of that graffiti. Oh hell yeah! I was actually yeah, I was also awesome. gonna say, yeah. um, if if you want to shoot us uh, some song recommendations yeah. to throw in um you know because we usually just put in music as like little dividers in the show, show if, you, yeah. if you want if not no no worries we can yeah, just yeah, find stuff good. but if you've got some uh <clears throat> some ideas for things as long as it's findable <laughs> as long as i can <laughs> find it to, to to download it um, yeah, we'll throw it in yeah all right well um you know we've been going for over an hour now so um I don't know if there's anything else you'd like to say, Alex. And I would say say it now. Otherwise, uh, this has been fun, yeah, and we'll do it again it out, very dude. soon. <laughs> Come on, what else? Uh, Dance monkey. Doc- working on the documentary. Uh, yeah. I am. I am working as a professor now, which is cool. That's uh, awesome. Uh, it's a it's a contract, so we'll see. I kind of want to move to Europe, mm. so I really would prefer. A remote job like if i could if, like if the university of phoenix is listening please hire me like, <laughs> I, I want a remote teaching job uh because then it would allow me to move anywhere you should work uh, for the revived trump university that would be sweet work from the inside yes that could work <laughs> yeah i mean change them from the inside yeah i'm gonna be kicked out of the country anyway if trump is reelected. so yeah yeah i know right yeah Yeah, i I think i think you know we're all we're all somewhere on that list i might be a little further down than you guys but i'm on it yeah i'm already prevented from uh visiting my family in florida so yeah yeah pretty soon i'll yeah yeah, i'll be kicked out booted oh I run a communist library. I've made inquiries into the FBI about the Socialist Club of Rhode Island. I like. I've been to Russia five times. I went to Georgia recently. Like, yeah, no, no, you're 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 going. You're, you're, yeah, you're you're yeah, gone, you're, you're, dude. You're you're, uh, you're you're bona fides are established. My apartment, and they just see all the Soviet propaganda I have everywhere. Well, they won't they won't see it. Just blur it all. <laughs> this behind me is definitely not a banner. Yeah, the- <laughs> I don't know. That could be that could be Manchester United, dude. That's uh... yeah, yeah, you're a big footy fan. Yeah, <laughs> Manchester United, a big football fan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I, yeah. yeah, I do like. I guess it is realistically part of like my 
10-year plan is to move out yeah. of the United States. Um, but, like, you know, because I have a job, uh, an academic job that pays well, it would be kind of uh, career suicide to right. quit before having something else. So, yeah. you know, I, I am where I am for now, and then and we'll see what happens. But, um, yeah, so there's that going on. There's the documentary. Eventually I'll start the other book project and you know, that's really it. It's kind of cool, cooling it out. I've been, um, I don't know if it's going to amount to any project, but I've been reading a whole lot of histories of the American communist party. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because I, I am well-rounded in the history of the Soviet union and European communism. And, uh, you know, there's somebody associated with, my library who wanted to do a reading group on American communism. And I was like, that's a really great idea, but I couldn't do it. Like, I don't, I don't have that knowledge. And so, uh, I've been reading up on it recently, which is very fascinating and sad at the same time because, uh, history just tends to repeat itself. So obviously, you know, with all the infighting that, that happened historically with American communism kind of repeating itself, here yeah it's, um, it's it's kind of amazing considering how short our national history is in a relative sense how many times we've been kind of through the same cycles um yeah. and you know i'd say i mean when it comes to that sort of issue um you know at least three times you've seen like these major flips back through where there's been like an attempt at 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 you know organization of of the working class etc cetera, etc cetera, and then just like a, a an immediate and brutal pushback against that it's like oh. we're good at it we're good I mean, at fucking at least, squashing that at least as far as my understanding is that pushback is always uh initiated by uh bigger world historical events yeah. so like for example the 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 red scare really intensified in the u.s after uh khrushchev had had uh you know exposed stalin's crimes and stuff like that um because then communists in the party there were first there was an exodus of people from the party who were who believed it and who were disillusioned and then uh then there were people that kind of doubled down on it and mm-hmm. and they became the ones who were really the the one the the, the, the comrades that were the victims of witch hunts but uh, it, it tends to be these moments of pushback tend to happen in relation to uh, uh, other contradictions in geopolitics and in economy. So, you know, the Ukraine war could be one. Mm-hmm. And it it seems uh, with everything going on, particularly in Russia, uh, that it's going that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, feels like it. Well, hey, man, All thanks right. so much for coming on. It's always awesome to see you and talk to you and, and, and have your input on this stuff. And uh, I think we talked a little bit about this before we started recording, but um, I think if you're up for it, I'd, we'd love to have you back to talk about some some Soviet horror flicks. Yeah, we'll watch some horror films and yeah. talk about it for for an hour or so. I think <laughs> that sounds like a great yeah. idea. Yeah, that'd, yeah, we'll plan that for the summer. It'd be a lot of fun. Uh, um happy to talk about them no yeah. some of them are hard to watch <laughs> real hard to get through but yeah. they're in 
some that are really great. But, you know, understanding them in the context of Soviet history, which is what I do, I think is really interesting. So mm-hmm. we can talk about that. Yeah, yep. I think we, it's right. been a while since we've done a movie episode, so I think that could be a good yep. one. All right. All right. All right, well, thank you very much, Alex. Uh, We'll talk to you again uh, sometime this summer. And uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. And uh, we uh, uh, just want to say thank you for all the new listeners as well, as we've gotten some of those lately. So Mm -hmm. nice to see see some some new downloads there. And, uh, yeah, hope you you enjoyed it. Yeah, this has been our second best. Best month now. It's now our best month? Yeah. Oh, cool. I I didn't check today. Yeah. Great. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, bye, everybody. <laughs> See ya. See ya.